With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, exciting to talk about this topic with this individual in particular. He writes over at Arc Digital, which I wrote at a couple times way back in the way back. Alan L. Rod, how are you, sir? Thank you for joining us on the program. I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to have you here. He'll talk about the Pulaski Institute he's involved with in just a little bit. He teaches at ASUBB. Uh, that's after Cabot, but if you go to Searcy, you went too far for those of you in the <laughs> Jacksonville area. Some of my old stomping grounds from where I got sent to Little Rock. But that's another story for another day. You're writing in Arc Digital. Look, this is a <laughs> this is a very specific breaking news news cycle instance on a very old topic that we have constantly been discussing since the beginning of America. And if you go in philosophy and history, humans have always been debating this. When you strip away all the names and you strip away the politician names and the pundit names and all the buzzwords and all the social media stuff and the political stuff, what we're really talking about in this piece in Arc Digital, and we're gonna to link to the whole thing, we're talking about freedom and we're talking about a pluralistic society. Now that word gets thrown around a lot, but it really is something that America has a little bit of a unique claim on. We're a big pluralistic society, or at least we should be. Let's start with that term and that word, because if we don't have a good handle on that, the rest of this is going to get in the weeds real, real fast. Uh, um, so, you know, the idea of a, of a pluralistic society is one where um, multiple groups of people, um, and that can be broken down in all kinds of categories, religions, ethnicities, uh, cultures, are able to live and thrive and, uh, most importantly, right, enjoy uh, the expression of those identities in a way that's not, you know, uh, unduly uh, restricted, right? And that's, that's really what it, what it comes down to, right? And that's, um, in, in many ways, the story of American society has been the fight for that very thing, right? Uh, and, and so... Uh, while we tend to look, I think, today on um, U.S. history and society as, as sort of uh, a place where, okay, we've achieved that now, right? So we tell the story about how we got there. Uh, it's still really important to be vigilant to to all the ways in which uh, those principles can be can be undermined. Yeah, and the way they get undermined and the what you're getting to the thrust of here is, the relationship between the government and freedom, whether that's freedom of speech, whether that's mm -hmm. freedom of a business to do whatever a business is going to do, it gets complicated because government does have a regulatory function. Mm -hmm. But then we get politics involved and we get cultures involved. And then those two lines start crossing. You're using the example down in Florida. But when those lines all start crossing, that's when you get to the heart of not only pluralism, but also what freedom means, because there's a push-pull element to freedom that you're just never going to get out of that equation of more freedom here means a little less freedom over here. And that's the tug of war that we're always going to deal with here, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's with this kind of thing, there's always the, the tension of there's the there's the legal question, right, of freedom and and whether or not you know speech is being. Uh, legally restricted, whether or not expressions being legally restricted, whether or not government is regulating people's freedoms. And then there's another kind of question about, you know, the culture of free expression, right? Are we 
are we fostering a, a kind of culture that is open, that is willing to uh, uh, embrace difference? And the real test of that is always, always, always difference that we don't like, right? Because everyone thinks that the thing that they would like to censor, that they would like to see less of, um, is falls into that special category of things that deserve, right, um, censorship or uh, restraint or restriction in some way, right? Everyone thinks that their special thing well, is the exception. And fighting against that impulse is, is a really, really hard thing. Yeah, Alan Elrod joining us. This is where you get into because lots of people want to do things like censorship, like cutting down somebody's right to speak or somebody's right to do whatever, but they'll slap that freedom word on the front end of it. So how do we start parsing that out when we get news like the debates in academia, the debates in education, the debates in free speech and media of media companies doing this, that or the other? Where do we start discerning this out? Because lots of people can put freedom on the front end of that statement, not really meaning it. That's kind of where we get into the buzzword part of this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. People love to call you know, everything a free speech issue. And in the sort of literal legal constitutional sense, that's that's not the case, right? Obviously, uh, the government restraining speech or putting putting punishments or on, on speech as a consequence of, of speech actions, it, that's when it becomes a First Amendment uh, issue, right? But that's why I think it's so important to, to keep that distinction. And, you know, I don't want to go too far in the in the weeds like you said but the reason why like karl popper and his idea of the open society is so important to all this is popper's fundamental argument is that um not that truth is relative but that and i think this is something we can see when we look through history the the most virtuous way to run a society is something that's always in contention and the best way to make sure that we're actually living in a society that is pursuing uh, good ends that is letting people try to live their best lives is to is to have one where uh, people really can both kind of in their personal lives and the way they live it and in the sense of public debate assert different ideas about what it looks like to live a good life to live a to live a free life and and to 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 shape society how it ought to be and that actually is like I think again so important to say. Because we do see this sometimes from the left as well. It's really hard to be committed to that. It is really, really hard to be committed to that idea of a genuinely open society where we accept that people are going to have different ideas about what's good, uh, but that placing limits on how people live their lives or how people express themselves is really the worst possible way <laughs> to actually you know, mitigate the bad. Yeah, Alan Elrod joining us. Anytime we reference somebody like a popper, though, we need to understand what he was writing about, what he mm -hmm. was talking about. You opened your piece in Arc Digital. Again, we're going to link to it. Read right. the whole thing. This is an extensive piece. There's a lot of links in this piece you need to click yeah. through as well. Make up your own mind about it. Popper's writing about um, the quotes you're pulling from him are actually in the 70s towards the end of his life. He's writing mm -hmm. about the events of the 20th century, obviously, the Nazis in Europe. Soviet Union, these kind mm -hmm. of oppressions, fascism all the way back in the 30s, he even touched on in some places. That's what he was framing his discussion about. Now, we'll <laughs> Twitter being Twitter and Facebook being Facebook, everybody we don't like is obviously a Nazi or a communist or whatever, whatever. Right. right. So the terminology <laughs> gets carried over. 
but they're not the same things. However, what are the core principles that carry over, even though though we use those as kind of the worst case scenarios? We're not in those worst case scenarios yet, God willing, but Mm -hmm. some of those principles should carry over. What are the principles under the buzzwords we need to glean from that? You know, I think the core difference really gets at, you know, the the simpler terms that are underneath that idea of pluralism, and that's difference. Uh, And human beings uh, struggle with difference, right? That's at the root of of racial prejudice through history, but it's also at the root of, of things like the tribalism we experience today, right? We're really bad when we encounter difference uh, at at managing our response to it. And the core here is this idea that um, if the big thing that I know about the world that I'm convinced is true, uh, is really actually, not is really true, but is really worthwhile, that that there is actually a chance in an open society where we can um, debate and be contentious, but also do it in a way where we know um, that we're not going to throw anyone in jail, but also that we're not going to um, try to overly silence anyone else. That that there is always that that kind of sense that we can come to um, sometimes compromises, sometimes sometimes not, sometimes ideal uh, conclusions, but also that the risk is worth it, right? Because because you know, democratic societies have been the kinds of places that have sometimes produced right fascism and authoritarianism right weimar germany was this um, in many ways very permissive place that 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 you know was what preceded nazi germany so i think that's also the scary part is is we have to accept the risks of embracing difference of embracing the idea that living together as people means a whole lot of different ideas about what the life of an individual or the life of a whole society should look like. And that's really hard to do. (laughs) Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Alan Elrod joining us. Let's let's do some history real quick because I think it's a really important touchstone because it's something that gets brought up. You just mm-hmm. mentioned the Weimar Republic. Of course, that is pre-Nazi Germany, what was going right. on between the First World War and Second World War. It was a disaster in, on an economic level, but that was also stuff that came out of World War One. Mm-hmm. We have all these pundits, and you just mentioned it, and you talk about it in your piece. They point to the cultural part of the Weimar Republic. They talk about, you know, a very open society, a very decadent society, a very tolerant mm-hmm. society. It was very well known for lavishness, for lack of a better term, without <laughs> getting too far into it. That's a fair way to put it, right? There, there was a lot going on. However, what happens is the people that want to discuss uh, the things going on now say, oh, well, that society was so tolerant 
that gave way to Nazi Germany. That's not a straight line. Those two things are not exactly the same thing. But when we're going to talk about pluralism and freedom, the people that want to use the term freedom as a battering ram against things they don't like, they simplify something like that and then try to use it as an example going forward. That's not really the case, though, is it? No, ex no, absolutely not. And I think this is where we can kind of tether a few ideas. We can tether this sort of debate around the sexual permissiveness of Weimar and the conversations about today with drag shows and things to actually the, the more academic uh, curriculum conversations around CRT. And we can link them uh, really in this way. Because these things are messy and contentious and hard, and because there are always going to be groups that react um, negatively, right, to this kind of people living their lives in these very freely expressed ways, there is an appeal to groups that come along and, and assert uh, a, a particular truth, a rigid truth, right? And, then, and the Nazis did that, right? That's what they did. They said, you know, these are, these are the mores. Um, obviously, there was the racial politics, but they had also, you know, very kind of anti-gay, anti-sort of prurient politics. Uh, and today, um, you know, I find it really chilling for anyone to compare, you know, drag shows today to Weimar Germany, because to me it says uh, something kind of dark about the impulses that person may have towards uh, the LGBT community today. But when we flip that over to conversations even about, um, you know, CRT and history and curriculum, Talking about history and race uh, and power is, is supposed to be, I think, an explorative, interpretive process. You know, I was an undergrad. I was trained as a historian. Uh, and um, history is difficult, right? And I think what you see at the core of a lot of these sort of curriculum changes that say that they're liberating students from these sort of what they think is overly racialized ideas about uh, American history or about uh, race and power dynamics, what they're really doing is saying, we really want to tidy up history and make it this sort of clean, more linear, positive thing. And it just isn't. Um, it, it, and that, again, is not an assertion of relativism. It's an assertion that dynamism and messiness and difference are at the core of pretty much any human thing, history, culture, politics. But that the instinct to to cover those things up, to uh, conform them to more sort of rigid structures and ideas, um, is a persistent one over time. But it's one that we have to be really, really careful about resisting. Yeah, Alan Elrod joining us. This is one of those things where, look, it's like you're on the interstate. You're trying not to ram the guy in front of you, and you don't want the person behind you to ram into the back end of you when you try to slow down, right? There's a balance mm -hmm. here. Proper context on these things to me is I always try to lean as much as I can towards freedom and pluralism. And the reason why is because the path against those things always winds up in the same place. We know this through human nature that you just spoke of. We know this historically throughout history. There's so many examples of this. Yes, there is such a thing as, you know, we got to have some rules and we got to have some law and order. But the people who want to crack down on very specific things and usually over cultural things, that's always a red flag to me. And it doesn't mean they're always wrong. It's just one of those things you got to discern. But when I look at it historically and if I step back from the culture stuff and the buzzword stuff, if you're purposely going after specific things over and over and again, 
that's always a red flag to me because pluralism is one of those all of the above as much as we can possibly do kind of things. Absolutely. And I think this is where, you know, um, even, you know, it's not just people right on the right. Like when you see sort of Twitter blowups about someone, whether it's a stray joke they made on the Internet or, or some viral video or, or some report of, of something that was said or done. Um, I think we always, always, always have to meet anytime there's like a call to discipline a person to fire them or to uh, have them you know, investigated. I think we have to start with a position of skepticism about those things. Now, it may very well be uh, that, 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 you know, actions need to be taken sometimes. But in general, I think, you know, it's really hard to resist that, right? Because as soon as whatever it is that's happened plays into our concerns, plays into our sort of uh, preferred sort of uh, issues or hobby horses, right? That that rage boils up, that anger boils up. We feel very self righteous, and 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 suddenly, um, a situation that might be very similar but involves slightly different players or issues, where we would say, you know, you can't you can't discipline this person for what they've said. Uh, we're saying, well, but this but this is the special situation where you should be able to. joining us how often does the special situation burn us let's take a example that you used in your piece it's been in the headlines we've been covering on the show before the disney situation in florida look mm -hmm. disney's one of those things it's like walmart back a decade or two ago it's like amazon now they're the biggest thing on the block so they get to be the easy target right and everybody knows what it is so it's a universal messaging thing is if you're if you're fighting with disney everybody knows what disney is you don't have to explain it right Disney and Florida have a long, complicated history. Ron DeSantis, the governor, has been making hay, picking fights with Disney on regulatory mm -hmm. issues, on cultural issues, on a couple other things. How do we parse this out beyond the politics <laughs> of it? Because obviously it works for him. Like it hits the right nerves for his base and the audience he's aiming oh, yeah. at. There's also a little bit of hypocrisy here because no, they're not going to get rid of the, you know, they are not going to take over Disney for the state. It would bankrupt the state if they did that. That's not going to happen either. Right. So there's some performative to this. But again, once we strip it all down, we're right back to the old adage. How much should government influence a major company that they're already in bed with? Let's just call it what it is mm -hmm. and try to affect what their product is and how the government interacts with them. This is a very, very old, you know, you could go back as far as you want in human history and you have a government entity and a big business. This is an old story. This is just the new run on it, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's always a question of, of obviously government has a role in regulating. And if some governor of Florida had just come along and said, I think we need to reevaluate, you know, the, the Reedy Creek Special Improvement District, that by itself is not alarming. What's alarming is the clear sense that this is about punishing Disney for speaking out against right at the time, right the the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill, uh, which Disney did largely because its own LGBTQ employees were upset, uh, and then also you have like all this other stuff of, of sort of conservative activists being angry about right the depiction of same-sex couples in Lightyear, right? Like, never mind the fact that you know seventy-plus years of Disney content has presented other 
very much more sort of, you know, rigid ideas about relationships. So, you know, it, it always comes down to sort of in this kind of situation, the motivations, right, and the context, right? Regulating this, biz this business is not by itself nefarious. The idea that the state of Florida or that Ron DeSantis would try to wage this both regulatory and kind of PR battle against Disney as punishment, right, for speaking out against a, a bill, that is obviously not the kind of conduct. <laughs> if that were being done, right, in a, in a system uh, just in another country, we would say, uh, well, that's not very good, right? That's not very, that's not very democratic uh, or very, uh, uh, you know, so free and fair and, and, and market friendly, right? But it's being done in an American state. And that means that people tend to run to their sort of party tribal uh, lines, um, but it's still bad. <laughs> Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. I think we need to change how we talk about this. You address this on your piece. Let's take somebody. Look, Ron DeSantis won by a huge number in his reelection. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, very popular. So what he's doing is very popular with his state. For somebody who agrees with somebody like Ron DeSantis on 80, 90% of policy, but they think the Disney thing just went too far. That kind of folks. If you just come out and go, well, Ron DeSantis is clearly a dictator now. Well, no, that's too far, too. That's hyperbole. No, he's not a dictator. He was duly elected, and his base that elected him really likes this. I think it's cynical and political theater, and I think it's a little hypocritical, too, when you dig into the specifics of how they we're going to do it, we're not going to do it kind of stuff. But no, he's not a dictator. Both of those extremes, those, those buzzwords aren't helping the conversation whatsoever. 
So if you got somebody that likes a politician, I'm just picking on Ron DeSantis here for the example. Somebody who likes most of what he does, but he does one thing that's too far here. Let's just pick the Disney thing. How do we talk about that in a non-buzzword 2023 overhyped social media way where you have to go, well, I have to like everything he wants or I'm a Libby Lib or he's a dictator. Mm. You see what I'm saying? We got to find a better way to discuss differences like that, because if you're talking to somebody that's reasonable, you can persuade them or discuss it. But if you start with the extremes, you got no chance. How's a better way to discuss a topic like that? Well, and, you know, I can happily throw out the example, right, of my uh, my new governor in Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who just uh, signed a bunch of executive orders on Tuesday right after her inauguration, right, also sort of limiting CRT and K-12. She also did this thing where she banned the use of the word Latinx uh, in government uh, uh, documents. And I, I that may even be a good point of comparison because, you know, Latinx is not especially popular among many Latinos. Uh, although some use it, but the question there is really similar to this question with Ron DeSantis of, is, is the step of banning it appropriate, right? Uh, and I think that's where you have to have the conversation. You know, liberal democracy lives and thrives, uh, and it also, you know, uh, is at risk and potentially perishes at the sort of general commitment to these principles. So I think it's important to say, look, everything isn't a question of, you know, full free democracy or dictatorship. Um, there's a lot of uh, nuance in between where we can say, well, what I'm worried about is, uh, you know, a culture, a political culture, or even um, specifically a, a state administration that is willing to go after companies or after groups in this way. To me, what is that set up for future administrations? Who want to go after other groups, right? That you're even less comfortable with, right? And and you know that can sound preposterous, right? But at the same time, right? Criminalizing drag shows is is not um, is not a moderate or 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 mild policy. Uh, and I do think you know with Ron DeSantis, I, I get worried with it because you know he's not a dictator. He's not a he's not. You know, he is the governor of a state, but at the same time, you know, American democracy made up of 50 states. And if you see the degradation of the quality of democracy or the quality of sort of civic life in a given state, especially a state as big as Florida, that that does uh, actually have a kind of, you know, deleterious effect on the quality of democratic life in the country. And I do also get worried when you have people like, you know, I cite Rod Dreher in the piece, living over in Hungary, who love Viktor Orban, and who look at DeSantis and say, actually, no, I agree this guy is kind of like Orban, who has sort of taken over his country's higher education system and passed lots of anti-LGBTQ laws and been very kind of assertive about this sort of very rigid, mythical, hagiographic idea of Hungarian history. It's just that I think those comparisons are great and good. Well, that that actually should disturb us a little bit. So I think there's a way we can be fair. We don't want to be hyperbolic. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm not inclined to cut him excessive slack, you know, especially the way his spokesperson, Christina Bashal, has conducted herself going out and saying, you know, if you oppose the, uh, the don't say gay bill, then not only may you be a groomer, but uh, you're probably indifferent, right, to essentially the, the sexual violation of children. That, that, that is not the kind of thing that a public mouthpiece uh, 
should be saying in in a United States uh, jurisdiction. Alan Nelrod joined it, but she's saying it because it works. Oh yeah, and she's hired specifically to say it. And mm-hmm. here's the thing: I don't like it. I don't care for her, her style, and what she does whatsoever. We're going to see more and more of that um, because we have a template now. We have a template of the last few years that there's a segment of the electorate that really, really likes that stuff. So how do we, if you don't like that stuff, even if you agree with what, the, let's just hypothetical this a little bit. If you agree with, let me use the same number again, 80, 90% of what they're doing and you don't like the messaging they're doing, how do we discuss that? Because like you just said, part of, the, part of where the pluralistic society starts breaking down is it's not just tolerating somebody that's different than you. Mm-hmm. It's also being able to communicate and get along with the people that are different than you. And Absolutely. I think that's where that becomes an issue of how are you going to govern all the people when you're, you know, balkanizing them just to get elected in the first place? I understand it's going to be successful. I understand it hits all the right buttons. I understand it works. I'm not dumb. And maybe it's a little pie in the sky, but there is better ways of doing it than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think to me, I, I won't try to answer this in any way as, you know, advice for political strategists or people who want to win campaigns. But if we're talking on a more interpersonal level, you know, I do think there is a question of which, like, are you, are, can you be brave enough? I know brave may sound like a, an overplayed worker, but can, can you kind of be brave enough to model this stuff yourself, right? Can you extend it first? Can you be someone who's willing to embrace, not just shutting down people who disagree with you? And that includes some things that might be very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people struggle with this where they conflate sort of, well, um, you know, not fighting to shut down speech that I think is offensive means I'm saying it's okay. It doesn't. Right. Uh, you can you can uh, vigorously oppose and object to it. But can you kind of model that yourself? I think some of it takes that. Can we try every day to be people who who uh, kind of try to resist that instinct that happens so often, like online to pile on people or to to call for people's jobs or those things? I mean, those are little things, but they add up. Can we be people who participate in trying to to foster that much more sort of open, dynamic, vigorous way of engaging in, in public and civic life. Yeah, he's Alan Elrod, uh, president CEO of the Pulaski Institute. He teaches at ASUBB. This piece is in Arc Digital, a wonderful publication that's got a lot of different stuff in it. I've wrote there back in the day a couple of times. Make sure you check that out as well. Alan, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up. Either. We're going to link to the pieces and the organization, but let folks know what you're about and how they can follow you until they get you back on Hertel again. Phenomenal. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at A-S-L-R-O-D, so A-S-E-L-R-O-D. Uh, I'd love it if people would come visit us at the Pulaski Institution, uh, which is just www.pulaskiinstitution.org. We have a number of things there. You can find uh, our podcast, which is called uh, The Periphery from the Pulaski Institution. It's available on Spotify, on uh, Google uh, Music, Amazon Music, Stitcher, other places like that. Um, You can read our blogs, uh, one of which we're really proud of is the 50 Takes on Democracy series, because part of what we're focused at at Pulaski is subnational democracy. Uh, And we've been inviting uh, academics and journalists and other experts to write about sort of the, the state of democracy in their state. I'm proud of the pieces we have so far. We've got some pieces coming um, in the next few months on 
uh, Indiana, California, the District of Columbia, uh, and we've already got pieces up on places like Tennessee, Alabama, and Kansas, and more. Um, and obviously, you can read me at Arc Digital, where I am a columnist. And I think Arc is a is a place that really embodies a lot of stuff we're talking about about pluralism and, and openness to ideas. Speaking of pluralism and openness to ideas, is Pulaski County still a blue county? Because that blew yeah. my mind when I first moved there back in two thousand. It is. It's. I mean, it is, and it's one of the few ones that that probably still is Little Rock, North Little Rock. Jacksonville are still all uh, pretty democratic. Uh, the second district, which is includes mostly Pulaski, is still uh, a little bit pinkish. I mean, we're represented by uh, Republicans uh, at, at every congressional district, um, which is, you know, I'm not saying there's something inherently wrong with that, but uh, it is not a it's not an especially politically diverse state. That's true. It's a very interesting political state. And I got there right at the tail end of the Clinton presidency. So it was mm-hmm. really, uh, for, <laughs> to show my age here, the other Huckabee was governor at the time. Oh, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know if people realize. Yeah, we're, we're now on to our second generation of, uh, of Huckabee uh, in the governor's mansion. So yeah, we'll see there, how it goes. <laughs> I was there for the tail end of his administration and the pardon fiasco. Uh, but we'll talk about that some other day. Uh, right. Alan Elrod really enjoyed this. This is an important topic. It's not the buzzwordy stuff. It's not the trending stuff. This is the core stuff that we got to get a handle on to make things right. better. Appreciate your time today. We'll have you back soon. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Ah, welcome back to her tell. She's a favorite. I know this because you people keep asking me when she's coming back. Here she be, Sarah Stook from over in jolly old England, which is mostly rainy and dreary England oh, because sorry, east, sorry. yeah, the east coast of England in the winter time. Uh, it you may have heard it rains once in a while. How are you doing with the rain? Is all well with you? Well, I'm going to go out and get a chippy later, so I'm hoping it doesn't rain when I'm going to get that chippy. Chippy. Fish and chips. I know what that is, but you got to tell everybody else what it Fish is. And chips. All right. I also like where you do the sandwich where you just put the French fries on the white bread and fold it over. That one's always fun, too. Um, Culinary geniuses we are. Screw the French. The British do the real food. You know, English food gets a bad rap, but you know what it is? Is because they compare it to like, we think of French food as fancy. If you think of English food as like comfort food or soul food or country cooking, it, it's all fine. It all matches up fine. That's the trick to it. But exactly. look, I've been to England. I like the food. The food was fine. I will take up for your food. Anyway, you do what you always do and you poke fun at us. You did a whole series on presidential runners up. I got a kick out of this because I love history. It gives us a little bit of perspective on the present and where we're going in the future. What lesson do you take from presidential runners up? Because it's really interesting who hasn't become president and who's lost when you go to look at these lists. I mean, sometimes it's an absolute landslide and then sometimes it's extremely close. If you look at, you know, Samuel Tilden versus Rutherford B. Hayes, you know, they had to throw it to the house and they throw it to the courts and people have to decide who aren't, you know, the voters because it's that close. And you get, you know, people who are really experienced who fail or sort of newcomers or someone like um, Brian who ran three times and just never won what once poked out at you this is a multi-part series like usual 
over on Elections Daily. We'll link to it like we always do. But um, what what stuck out with you? I know you mentioned that, you know, the post-Civil War runners up, there was a lot of Democrats. They had like a streak of them there for a while. There's some really big names in history, like you just mentioned, that are runners up. What really stuck out to you, though, when you did this whole series? Well, I think there's sort of no guarantees of success, as it were, especially when you're running against a popular incumbent. If you look at 1984, I've, I've still got quite a few to write. But 1984, um, Mondale versus Reagan. Reagan won 49 states. He was 3,000 out of winning Minnesota. That's inc- that wouldn't happen today because, you know, you've got states that are so partisan, it's untrue. Yeah, Mondale didn't stand a chance. Like He tried to do the gimmick. He tried to get the um, female candidate vice president. No guarantee. Um, but I suppose back then, vice presidents weren't really, you didn't really think about your running mate. Whereas nowadays... When we get to John McCain, Sarah Palin definitely took votes from that camp because everyone thought, well, if he dies, she's president. And yeah. yeah so, I'm not I'm not sure that's Geraldine Ferraro's fault, just to be fair to Geraldine Ferraro. But um, no, I take your point. It's interesting, though, because you're from England. So in the parliamentary system, that sort of thing never happens because it's basically next person up and with very few exceptions, which, you know, like this past year where you keep going through leaders. Um, you pretty much know who the next person's going to be pretty well in advance. It is a unique part of the American system because of the primary system, because of things like this. You do get that candidate that everybody can just go, oh, they've got no chance whatsoever. And more times than not, no chances of exactly what happens. But I mean, Donald Trump, nobody thought he would win. Even at, when I saw first watched his announcement in 2015, I thought, you know, he's probably not going to get far. And then he won. And then he won the presidency. Jimmy Carter had a 2% name recognition. Sometimes the people that you don't expect do the very best. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you also have, it's interesting since we're on the topic though, but we've had a couple presidents that didn't get it on their first tries. You know, Nixon had to take a couple swings at it. Uh, George H.W. Bush ran against Reagan famously before he became president. Now, I know Trump's going to run again. That's kind of the outlier for the last 40 or 50 years, though. Usually it's one and done and folks are done. President Biden, he ran three times. Third time he finally won, although there was a big gap. Do you think the days of multiple shots of it are going to start coming back? Is that a cyclic thing? What do you think? We've seen quite a lot of two-termers in the past few years. You've seen Clinton, you've seen um, Bush. Uh, Junior and Obama so you know three in a row is quite impressive we haven't really had the days of one terms for a while so perhaps that's what's going to bring it back because you know Biden is unpopular as far as I'm aware that's not so he won't win next time but it depends you know how he conducts his campaign and if it's Trump against him or DeSantis who's clearly the Republican choice after he's made Florida a super majority for the Republicans. I wonder too, Sarah Stook joining us like she often does, when it comes to failed president, we have these huge primaries now where we had, you know, we had what, 16 people run in 2020. Uh, You know, it's just insane how many people are running, but then they run these long shot campaigns where they're not going to win. They know they're not going to win, but then they end up getting a cabinet position or they end up running for another office later or they up their national profile. How do we figure that part of it in? Because the way campaign finance and fundraising goes now, 
running for president is kind of its own business model now. And that's different than in the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries where you cover these runners up where it's like, well, they failed and that was the end of their career. Now it's a business model. That's a whole different thing too, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Beto Rourke obviously ran for president. He's also lost the governorship of Texas race twice. Oh, well, he lost a Senate race as well. Sorry. So yeah, um, people to try to, I mean, like you said, there was 16 odds and there was people that was never going to get through like sort of no name as, as it were. And people, I mean, Pete Buttigieg has been, you know, Joe Biden's been a Senator longer than Pete Buttigieg's been alive to put it into perspective. Like somebody that young, you got to understand is probably not. And, you know, he was only really known for being like openly LGBT politician from a, a, a mayor ship in a small sort of city. Yeah. Would the would the mayor of Grimsby be considered for a prime minister? Like, would that work in? We don't really Grimsby? have mayors. Oh, mayors here is like mainly ceremonial. It's not like there's like someone like the mayor of London that actually had Mayor Grimsby couldn't tell you who it was. I have no idea who it is. It's right. Sarah and Mead. London, London's its own thing because they have, you know, their police force is separate from the rest of the yeah. country. They're, they, London's its own beast in and of itself for folks that aren't super familiar with it. It really is kind of a city state inside of the UK. From a UK perspective, do you look at something like the way we do part, you know, primaries and our presidents and the way we do our turnover? Although you, you lapped us this past year, but that's outside the norm. Usually you guys have pretty good runs does it seem chaotic the way we do presidents and runners up in the primary system? You guys take forever to count elections. I had to wait like two, three weeks to make, to finish my prediction list to tick it all off because California, I think California 22 took a very long time. It's like, geez, count. How is it taking two and a half weeks? Are you guys, I mean, we do it overnight. You should see Sunderland, follow Sunderland. They're always really quick with counting votes. Well, for one thing, the UK is only like 60 million people and we're 330 million. So but just... not every single one of them votes. Right. This is fair. But, you know, there's but there's things involved. You should not take forever like that. It's embarrassing. But not a, well, because and here here it is. And the, the criticism is because every state does it differently. You know, Florida is done instantly almost now. 20 years ago, Florida was the worst and they fixed their stuff, got together. Now they're the standard. Now Arizona's a trash fire when it exactly. comes to the stuff. So it, it's one of those things of our system where the states are individual. You know, you have federal elections, but they're administered by the states and it makes it a mess. All right. That's a fair criticism. All right, that's a fair criticism. Sarah Stuck poking holes into the Democratic Republic greatness of America from the bastion of craziness of the UK, where you can't even keep a prime minister longer ahead of well, lettuce. We have a stable monarchy. And I don't know if I call Charles stable, but okay. Um, I got to ask you because they're over here right now doing the tour. The um, Prince and Princess of Wales now, their new designation. They're over here touring America. It's been a couple of years since they did it. 
Is that a big thing now when a rural comes to America? I know the Harry and Meghan things kind of skewed this a little bit because they live here now full time. Does that still get coverage when they come over here? Is that a big deal in England at all? Yeah, it's got coverage. I've seen it over the news. I mean, I'm a huge fan of um, Kate. I think she's so lovely and she's always very stylish and she's going to make a really fantastic queen. So, you know, she's always covered because I think people like her. She's pretty popular. You will see people saying oh, how lovely she looks and how good a job she's doing because she. It's nice to see someone who's liked. So just ignore the politicians. It's nice to have a a properly liked figure. You know they've been received well, apart from a few chants of USA, USA when they were at a basketball game. However, unfortunately, your little nation can be quite. Did rude. you say basket goal? Basketball. You said basket goal. I said basketball. You said basket goal. I didn't. Okay, but I said basketball. <laughs> it it blew my mind though when you when you see them at like a basketball game or something. It's like America really does have an obsession over the English royal family. Like it's un it's 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 unarguable that we're you just do, obsessed you guys with these don't people. Have it. You don't guys just have like your dynasties are like the Kennedys and the Bushes and whatever. We have like gone thousands of years old family who have ruled over us but and you are a monarchist you like that sort of thing oh, we I don't like that, that sort of thing we like it by we proxy so the weddings and the funerals and that right That's... but we don't have to own it we're just borrowing it and getting entertained by it we don't have to actually deal with them fund them or be you know subjects They're very to cheap to be fair to be fair too since you're bringing the money up sarah stook joining us like the thing with the with the funeral for the queen and stuff, like it got brought up. Like, well, this is expensive. Like, no, you don't understand the income. The royal family is probably the biggest tourist attraction in England. Is that fair? To, like, they bring in a ton of money to the. You country. guys have an inauguration every four years. We have a big wedding or a funeral once in a blue moon. The coronation will be a big one, sure, but it's, Charles has said it's not going to be a humongous, expensive one. I mean, seriously, what's the list of people that are alive that remember the last coronation? Like, that's not a real big list, right? Exactly. Me, my nana and my grandma probably do. My grandfather um, served at the um, Queen's Father's funeral. He, he did pass away a few years ago, though. So, yeah, not not too many. It's like mm. my parents were born way after. So it's, it's really bizarre seeing a coronation. It's going to be very big and glitzy, though, and I'm looking forward to it because I like pomp and ceremony as a Brit. Well, as it, you know, just on the averages, though, you know, Charles is well into his 70s now. So you're probably going to get at least one or two more unless yeah. something really scary happens. Probably Will and Kate and then George. Sarah Stuck, I always love talking to you. Um, let me ask you a fashion question real quick. We just had our first state dinner of the Biden administration. Emmanuel Macron of the France came over. How do you put into context, you know, we call it nerd prom when we do stuff like this because all the journalists and the hot, they get a couple Hollywood stars and they get all pretend like they're all bigger stars than what they really are. And, you know, White House correspondence dinner, this kind of stuff. Savage, I love it. When you have political theater like that and it becomes a fashion event, you're a fashion person. Where does the political stuff like that rank when it comes to things like that? You guys can just never, you can never do what we do. I'm sorry, we have the crown jewels, we have the tiaras and the diamonds that are older than your country. And at the same time, Jill Biden isn't really that fashionable. 
I don't think like she can wear nice stuff and she just pairs it with not very nice things. Whereas Melania Trump, I know it's very controversial, but I thought she had a really good taste in fashion. Um, same with uh, Jackie Kennedy. Obviously, my love for Jackie Kennedy is unbound, as it were. And uh, Caroline Kennedy met with uh, William and Kate, I noticed. I would have went with unbearable, but unbound works. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I saw Caroline Kennedy met with um, William and Kate. But yeah, um, I mean... Yeah, you guys, I think it's kind of different because with the royal family, there's a dress code and what they're yeah. not allowed to wear. Like, you're not allowed to wear certain coloured nail polish. So my little pink nails would not be acceptable today. So, it's yeah, it's different. And, yeah, there's more of it. I think there's probably more of a dress code. But, yeah, I think you guys can do some nice events. You can, when they do the White House for Christmas, you can make it quite pretty. But it's a different kind of standard, I'd say, that, you know, it'd be a lot stricter over here. Yeah, like, we, we don't have the royal protocol where it's yeah. so cut and dry. Of course, some of this will probably change now that the Queen died because she was a real stickler for details and stuff. She Legendarily, she would read through the protocols and stuff. Um, and, and it's different because every White House is a little different. You know, the Obama White House had a different style than the Trump White House, which was just chaos. And then the Biden White House is going to be different than whoever comes next. Yeah. Um, I always found the Melania stuff a little interesting because obviously, you know, Trump's such a lightning rod and it's going to be controversial, but it's like, you know, when you think about the role of the first lady, and I don't mean this derogatory at all, but Melania is a trained model. There's probably been very few people who aren't better equipped to be the first lady than Melania was, you know, do stylish things, make it look good, stay in there, look pretty, present the country. Well, like she's a trained model. This is exactly the skill set you yeah, need for the modern personality. A very lovely sense of fashion. And I do believe yeah. if she was a Democrat and not married to Trump, she'd be on the cover of fashion magazines. Like I believe that uh, 100%. I believe she that. Very, I mean, she's got, you know, she's got the model figure. She's tall and she's very slim. So she, it works for her. But yeah, I think, you know, whatever you think of Trump, she is, is was whatever, a very elegant ladylike person. And I appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think she did anything really untoward or out of bounds or embarrassing anywhere in there. Sarah Stuck. All right. We know we got part four of the uh, runners up coming out soon. Let folks know what you got going on and what you have cooking over there in the UK. Uh, five hours ahead of us at any given time. So until we see you again, because you're a frequent contributor here on Her Tell, let folks know what you got going on. Um, I'm continuing um, with my Millard Sarah, Sarah's on the consorts of England and Britain, a few of whom are my uh, very distant ancestors, which is quite cool. I'll be continuing with my presidential runners-up. I'm hopefully going to be writing an article about the year 1979 and its effect on geopolitics. However, I am absolutely stumped on how to do it. So it will maybe appear, but it'll probably be after the new year. I'm actually really excited about that one because you were telling me about it. All right, Sarah Stoke, we'll let you get back to doing your busy, busy stuff. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hertel Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.